You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The veracity of the scriptures of truth, the divine origin of the Bible. This episode presented by Brother Andrew Yearsley. There are several strong lines of evidence that the Bible is not simply of human origin, but God derived. Many precise and falsifiable predictions have been fulfilled to the letter. This includes Israel and various nations. The paradoxical honesty of the biblical record and its highly flawed characters also suggests a non-human author. The Bible's message is consistent despite its authors living at different times and places. Its message has the ongoing power to change people's lives for good. The first in a series really talking about the Bible itself and how we can have confidence that this truly is the Word of God. And so this evening we will be uh, particularly talking about how its authorship is divine. And what do we mean by that? Well, really we mean that the Bible ultimately is written by God. Now, I'm a Bible believer, a student of the Bible, and I claim to base the direction of my life on the teaching of the Bible. And the principal reason for that is exactly that, because I believe that the Bible is written by an almighty God. In fact, uh, I'm not the only one who um, believes that. There are many people, in fact, our entire community, the community of Christadelphians, we are Bible believers, and we look to the Bible as being God's word. In fact, often we'll have uh, a seminar or a lecture such as this, and we might begin our, our discussion on a particular subject saying, do you know what, we're going to base our, our comments uh, this evening uh, out, of the fact, out of the Bible, and we're only going to really look into the Bible because for us, that is the only authority that we accept as being from God. In fact, our statement of faith, the statement of faith for us as a community, begins with a foundation statement. That foundation statement is, and I'll, I'll quote it verbatim, that the book currently known as the Bible, consisting of the scriptures of Moses, the prophets, and the apostles, is the only source of knowledge concerning God and his purposes at present extant or available in the earth. And that the same were wholly given by inspiration of God in the writers and are consequently without error in all parts of them, except such as may be due to the errors of transcription or translation. Okay, now there's a little bit of verbiage in there, and I'm not really going to explain all of that, uh, except to say that it's the principle or the core foundation statement for us as a community and us as uh, believers in the Bible, that we believe that the Bible, the entirety of it, is the word of God. And it has been delivered faithfully to us. And we're going to have a few other um, uh, talks in the subsequent weeks to talk about how that is, we can, we can be confident that this has been faithfully transmitted to us. In short, we believe that this book 
has a divine origin. The ultimate source of the book is God himself. But the obvious question is, well, we might claim that. And in fact, the Bible claims that itself. We uh, have confidence that that is, is true. Uh, I just note in my video, uh, every so often I get a wee halo. Uh, I'll try and uh, prevent myself from uh, appearing in that manner. Uh, so one thing that we might note initially is that the Bible is not alone in claiming to be a divine book. Uh, here are three examples uh, on the screen. We have the Quran. Uh, excuse my pronunciation here, but I believe it's the Bhagavad Gita, which is a holy book of the, the Hindu religion, uh, and also the Book of Mormon for the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Just three examples that also claim to have divine origin. And some of them, in fact, claim to be consistent and in harmony with the Bible, for example, the Quran or the Book of Mormon. However, we do note that there are numerous discrepancies. And if such, which one can we have confidence in? Which one can we base uh, our life upon? If they all claim to have divine origin, if they all claim to be the word of God, well, what, which one is true? Another important point to note is that very few of these other uh, divine writings have what we might call falsifiable predictions. That is, uh, not many of them will make a prediction that you can actually demonstrate is either true or false as having come to pass or not. And really the Bible actually in, in many ways is a great contrast to that because there are many amazing predictions and prophecies. We'll just look at just a couple uh, this evening, which can indicate and demonstrate to us that this must have had a divine author because these predictions uh, have come to pass. Now in reality, uh, all of these writings uh, should be examined in much more depth, and I suggest that you do so to satisfy for yourself uh, on these great broad brush claims that I've just made. However, due to time constraints, we're only uh, going to have this very cursory glance away from the Bible. And in fact, the remainder of our evening is going to refocus on the book that we know as the Bible uh, and try and provide some evidence to establish its credentials as the word of God. Uh, before we dive too far in though, what is the Bible? Well, in fact, what we find with the Bible is that the Bible is a set of writings. It's actually a book of books and it's made up of Jewish writings, which uh, a phrase for the, for the Hebrew scriptures, which really have three parts to it. Um, we know these uh, these three parts of the, the Hebrew scriptures uh, as the Old Testament. And additionally to that, um, well, subsequently to that, there was, was the New Testament, which is uh, writings by the apostles. And they deal particularly uh, with the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, everything hinges on that little gap in there, the beginning of the New Testament, which is uh, Christ Jesus uh, or otherwise known for the Jews as Messiah. And one thing that we might note immediately is this is a book of books. In fact, it's uh, comprised of 66 books. There are many different authors, approximately 40 authors. And it's a book that's been compiled 
uh, based on these uh, other books that's been written over a long time frame, been written over approximately 1,500 years from, from Moses and about 1,400 uh, years before Christ through to uh, the Apostle John, whose final writings we believe were around about 100 AD. What we also find is that it was compiled and edited over time. Similar how you might um, edit a story that you've told many times, depending on your audience, you might add a different emphasis. We see that, for instance, with the Gospels. There are four different Gospels, and they each have a slightly different emphasis because they've been written and compiled by a different uh, human author for a different audience and a different purpose. So yes, there is definitely a human element in uh, what we call the Bible because they were each writing in their own social and historical context to a particular group of people. However, behind all of that, we believe that there is a consistent uh, mind, a consistent author, uh, that being the Bible. Uh, sorry, we're talking about the Bible, that being uh, God himself. The exact process of that is uh, hard to determine, but actually it's phrased for us or called for us uh, within the Bible as inspiration. And so uh, on the screen, we have uh, a quote from uh, Paul when he was writing to a man called Timothy. And he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is proper for doctrine, proof, and teaching, etc., etc." Now, this is just one of many claims within the Bible to state that the scripture, a, a term for uh, the writings of the Bible, was inspired by God, that the scripture is divine. Inspiration literally means breathed or God breathed. It's the action of the invisible seen in other objects. And uh, I've put on some wind turbines behind to give an analogy of the action of the invisible wind that becomes very apparent and shows its power through the operation of the wind turbine. And we have uh, the same concept really with the inspiration of the Bible. There is an invisible uh, uh, source that is God working through his power and enacting through human authors in order to pen the words that we read in our, in our Bible. Well, that's all well and good. That's a little bit of a background of what we uh, uh, see and find within the Bible and how we believe it may have uh, come to pass as, as uh, uh, having divine authorship. But the question still remains, doesn't it? What evidence is there that God's hand was involved in all of this? So for the remainder of our time, we're going to uh, have a look at, at four different avenues or four different ways in which we might actually uh, compile some evidence for this. First of all, we're going to look at some uh, predictions that were made within the Bible and see how these prophecies or predictions have been fulfilled. We're then going to have a look at a number of paradoxes, some odd things that are within the Bible uh, that perhaps you may not expect in a book such as this. Um, thirdly, consistency. The fact that the entire Bible is united in its message, even across such a diverse range of authors and time periods. And finally, we look at how uh, the Bible has a power to change, a power to change us. So to begin with, let us look at some of the predictions that were made. 
Now, obviously, the Bible is a very large book, so I've only selected a, a, a small number to look at tonight. And to begin with, we'll have a quick look at some predictions that were made about Jesus Christ, one who is uh, to be the Messiah. Now, these, there were a series of predictions that were made throughout the Old Testament, prophecies about the Messiah. The Old Testament, we know, uh, we have evidence that it was written and it was completed and compiled prior to the time of Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament, as we know it, was available to uh, all people at the time of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm going to take uh, three examples from one of the gospel writers, the writer John, to demonstrate that when he wrote the gospels in around uh, in the first century AD, first century after Christ, one of the things that he wanted to stress or to, to indicate and demonstrate to his readers was that what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ had been predicted. Everything occurred according to the scriptures. What we'll note is that these are very specific. Not only are they specific, they were uh, the fulfillment or the completion of these were outside the direct control of Jesus himself or any of the disciples. So our first example here is uh, on the screen from John chapter 19 and verse 24, where it speaks of the Roman soldiers who said among themselves, let's not rend it, being the coat or the, the garment that Jesus wore. We're not going to tear it up, but we're going to cast lots for it. So, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the Romans didn't say that, but this is the comment of John when he was writing. This was done so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. Therefore, this is the reason why the soldiers did these things, even though they didn't know it. So John is actually directly quoting from uh, a passage in the Old Testament, which is a psalm, Psalm 22, verse 18, which is all about uh, the, the crucifixion and, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy about that. Well, okay, maybe it's somewhat unlikely for for a writer of the psalms to predict what might happen around the coat but it could happen let's see what else we have well here's two further applications around uh, the death of our lord these things were done so that the scripture would be fulfilled a bone of him shall not be broken and again another scripture which saith they shall look on him whom they pierce. Well, the question is, what things do they do? Well, Jesus Christ was crucified together with two other uh, criminals. They were each on the other side of them. And the Jews pressed on uh, the Roman leader at the time, the Roman governor, Pilate, to say, you know, we've, we've really got to take these down because there's a feast day coming tomorrow and we want to get, get them down and clear it all out. Um, and so in order to try and accelerate the process of death, they would, uh, they would come along and they would break the legs of those who had been crucified, prevent them from being able to, uh, to raise up and gain breath, and they would uh, uh, expire quicker. So that's the context. The, the Jews had gone to Pilate and he said, yeah, sure, you can go, you can go out and you can break their legs so that 
they will die and you can take them away um, or they can be taken away uh, prior to the feast day. But when they came to, the, to Jesus, they came to him and they saw that he was already dead. And they actually, they were incredibly surprised that he had died so quickly. So obviously, they didn't need to break his legs. It wasn't required. He was already dead. But just to make sure, or perhaps out of some kind of um, feeling of vindictiveness, they thrust a spear into his side. Now, once again, these are the Roman soldiers that were doing this, who had no idea or understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. But John mentions they did this so that the Old Testament scriptures would be fulfilled. The bone of him was not broken, and they'll look on him on whom they were pierced. As I said, perhaps it wasn't that unlikely that something about the coat may have uh, been predicted earlier. But to predict something about the coat, about his bones, and about being pierced, and all of them so specific and so particular, being prophesied thousands of years prior, and all of them coming to pass so meticulously and carefully and well, I'd put that to you that there, there must be a divine author behind the Bible to have ensured that these predictions uh, were true and would come to pass. Now, of course, that's without even speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has was predicted in the Old Testament and we believe came to pass. I'm not going to spend any time on that. Um, there are, that demands an entire evening uh, in and of itself. So that's, uh, our, that's a couple of questions or a couple of predictions that are on the, the uh, very focused and minute level. How about then some predictions that are on a much grander and larger scale? Well, about 200 years uh, prior to it happening, at the, at the height, the zenith of the power of the Babylonians, a man called Isaiah wrote this, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, it shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. I don't know if you've ever gone looking for, uh, for Babylon on uh, some online mapping uh, Google Earth or, or something similar, but there is nothing there. There are a couple of decaying, decrepit remains of what, what was the grand city of the world. When Isaiah said this, it would be equivalent to me saying to you now, do you know what? New York is going to be totally flattened. Never again will people live there. You'd look at me and think I'm crazy. That's, that just cannot happen. And yet that's exactly what Isaiah was saying. And what's more, that is exactly what did happen. And he said that, uh, I believe, approximately 200 years before it actually came to pass. Uh, not only that, we have some, some even broader predictions that are made uh, within the Bible. Here is a reference to a chapter in uh, the prophecy of Daniel. And in this prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, uh, that same Babylon that we we're just speaking about with, with Isaiah, had a dream. And he had a dream of the statue that we see uh, on the screen now, which had a series of metals, uh, golden head, silver chest, 
belly and thighs of brass uh, and legs of iron. And Daniel explains to him, and he was at pains to explain to Nebuchadnezzar, saying, do you know, this interpretation that I'm giving to you isn't my own. It's coming from the God of heaven. And he explained this, this dream that you have, the statue that you have seen, is describing the succession of nations that will come after you. And he said explicitly that after Babylon, there would come the Medes and the Persians. And then another one, and then another one, which we then can map onto the, the Grecians and the Romans that came afterwards. A little further on in the prophecy of Daniel, uh, it, it speaks of uh, additional information that's given. So for instance, there's uh, four, the element, uh, the number four is closely associated with the Grecian, uh, with the third empire in this, in this statue, which we take to be the Grecians. And lo and behold, what do we see when we look at our history books after Alexander the, the Great uh, passed away? His kingdom was inherited by four separate generals. And so the Greek empire was broken up into these four elements. Well, you see here that this um, statue is standing on two legs, two legs of iron. And those two legs associate with Rome. And what do we see when we come to the history books? Well, we see that Rome actually ended up becoming divided into two separate locales. There was Rome in the west, and then there was the second Rome, Constantinople, which uh, became the Byzant Byzantine Empire, the Rome of the east. These things just map so marvelously on things uh, that had been prophesied and predicted hundreds of years previously. This is not uh, the work of a human author. It must be divine. The Bible spends a lot of time speaking about the nation of Israel. Uh, and we'll, we'll discuss this in a, a little bit later on as well. And the nation of Israel was, was particularly chosen by God as the nation that he would work with. Uh, simply because God chose to. And there are many, many prophecies within the Bible relating to this nation. Uh, remember how one section of the Tanakh was simply entitled the prophets. Well, the prophets were God's mouthpiece and uh, the majority of what they were speaking and writing and, and speaking to the, to the people were to the nation of Israel and revolve around that nation. And there are so many different prophecies that we could go to with, uh, with Israel to talk about the enduring accuracy of God's uh, predictions that has been laid down for us within the Bible. I've just chosen one, one from the book of Jeremiah, because there are two elements in there which I want to point out. Uh, often, the prophecy is that Israel was going to be driven away out of their land that they had been given due to their infidelity because they chose instead of uh, serving the one true God, they chose to serve other idols instead. And we see that's exactly what did happen. They had been uh, driven out of the land and had been for a very long time, but yet we know from our modern history, actually, that they have returned. And so here is a, uh, a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah, approximately uh, 
600 years before Christ. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king, and he shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and justice in the earth. And in his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Uh, just before we flick on to the next screen to finish the quote, uh, note unto David there will be a righteous branch and a king. And he's going to bring and they'll dwell safely. It says, therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, the Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, a reference back to the story of the Exodus. But instead they'll say, the Lord lives, which brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country from all the countries, whither I had driven them, and they will dwell in their own land. Now, I haven't got a quote on here to, to demonstrate this, but perhaps you might recall uh, at the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus, the crux of uh, the entire Bible, uh, when the angel spoke to Mary, said, this will be the son of David, the king. And this prophecy here in Jeremiah is of a son of David, a king who would come. And at that the point when he establishes the kingdom of, of Israel and Judah again, all people will no longer refer back to, uh, to Exodus, but they'll refer back to the fact that God has taken the nation of Israel from all the countries that he had driven them out of and brought them back into the land of Israel. And that's exactly what we've seen uh, in our, the last 100 or so years, that out of all the countries of the world, many of the, nation, uh, of, of the Jews have been regathered re back into Israel. And we believe that it will continue to happen and on an even grander scale once that son of David is here on the earth again as, as a king. So this is a very um, short overview of some of the amazing and marvelous predictions that have been made within the Bible, uh, which we see have occurred and demonstrate to us and provide some evidence uh, that, yes, we can have confidence that this has divine authorship. So our next little section is a section of paradoxes. Now you might think, uh, why, why are we talking about some paradoxes some, some, uh, in order to demonstrate that this is, this is a divine book? Well, perhaps I should call them oddities more than anything. Um, I don't know about you, but most of the books that uh, I read or have read, the author would like to take some credit for what they have uh, put forward. If you're reading a book of nonfiction and someone or someone's propounding some theory, they will often uh, ensure, in fact, if you look at the, um, um, in academia, people will ensure that their name is written on their paper. They need to take credit uh, for what they have written. Now, yes, we know uh, many of the, the, the human authors of those in the Bible, but time and time and time again, they're referring to the fact that these are the words of God. They don't claim credit for what they have, uh, what they have written down. Uh, an example of this, and perhaps this is as much as anything, an example of the humility, uh, which comes from the, the, the power of the Bible to change people's minds. 
we know that Jesus chose 12 disciples and he had 12 in the, uh, in the close proximity of himself. They were the ones who were sent out to preach. And naturally thinking, we think, well, obviously, if we were going to have writings about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and then what happened, majority of them would come from the 12 disciples. Well, actually, the, majority, the, the author who has written the most in the New Testament is actually a man who was initially called Saul, and he wreaked havoc on the disciples. He persecuted the believers. But he became the principal author of the New Testament scriptures because he was changed. He was changed in his mind, and he even changed his name to demonstrate that, to be, to be called Paul. And yet there's no, uh, never any kind of feeling of ill will towards this man, Paul, who is a usurper in many ways, not only in his importance, but also uh, demonstrated here in the fact that he is the one who has the majority of uh, the written work within the New Testament. Once again, this is something that we wouldn't normally see uh, from, from humans operating together. One of the consistent messages throughout the Bible was that the humans are morally weak. Again, something that we don't like to own up to. Again, as a, a, a book of purely human authorship, it's not something that we would expect to see uh, consistently portrayed for us. Uh, back in the Old Testament, we have Jeremiah speaking to us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? And that's confirmed for us uh, by Jesus himself. Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts murders and adulteries, et cetera, et cetera. And really along a similar theme, we have the Bible presenting to us all people within it, warts and all. The greatest heroes of the Bible have not only their successes, but their failures documented for us. I'd suggest that a purely human authorship would ensure that those uh, errors were edited out of the compilation. We have Abraham with his poor decision traveling down to Egypt, being deliberately deceitful about his wife. Moses, the great pillar of the Old Testament, who was prevented from entering into the, into the promised land because of disobedience. David, the great king, who we have his adultery and murder portrayed for us as a key part of his life. Peter, one of the key disciples, and one of the greatest uh, stories that we have about Peter is his betrayal of his Lord three times at the time of Jesus' greatest need. We have them all presented to us, warts and all. So perhaps these oddities demonstrate to us that this is no normal human writing and uh, might add additional weight to the idea of divine authorship, divine origin of the Bible. We move on now to uh, our third section, that of the consistency of the Bible throughout. Uh, I don't really want to uh, spend too much time on this because I believe the next, uh, next week we have uh, a lecture entitled The Authenticity of the Bible. And I imagine this will um, form a part of that lecture. But if we were to look at the uh, manuscripts, so original copies of, of parts of the Bible, or parts of, of ancient literature. And we just look at some, uh, some famous pieces of ancient litera literature, such as uh, the Annals of Tacitus, the Roman historian. And we were to go through and, and try and determine how many different manuscripts there are available to us. We'd see there's an order of maybe six or eight different manuscripts of 
the writings of Tacitus. Homer, we have uh, significantly more, around about 500, 600. We see the New Testament, the number of different manuscripts um, available to us is off the charts relative to all other uh, his ancient historical documents. There's over 5,000 different uh, shreds of evidence, small uh, shreds of manuscripts or uh, larger portions of it, uh, all of them demonstrating that, uh, uh, or demonstrating as, as copies of the Greek New Testament. It's just totally off the charts. Uh, not only that, Homer, I mentioned, who has maybe, say, 600 different copies of, of, um, of the original manuscripts uh, that have been found, there are discrepancies across them. There's about 95, for, the, for Homer's Iliad, there's about approximately 95% uh, consistency across all of the manuscripts. And for all the manuscripts that we have in the New Testament, which, remember, there are over 5,000 of them, some would put it at over 99% consistency across all of those manuscripts, over 99% consistent. It's quite staggering, really, to think of that. Imagine copying out uh, a chapter hands, uh, by hands, and you copying that 5,000 times. Imagine the number of errors that you would make. Well, for one, if I did that, I wouldn't be able to read half of it uh, just because my writing is so poor. Uh, but I'm sure that I'd be having uh, much less than a 99% accuracy rate uh, in that. Um, I might just skip over that. The other key uh, message that I want to portray here around the consistency of, of the Bible is the consistency of the message, of the story, uh, which displays to us the purpose of the Bible. And realistically, it displays to us the purpose of our God, the, the almighty creator. And the message or the story of, of the Bible is that we have a God who has created the world, but who wishes to have a relationship, to enter into a covenant relationship with mankind that he has created. He wishes to have a set of people who believe in him and who are obedient to him, that he might give them life and they might, they might live together forever, uh, giving honor and glory to the one who they believe and obey. And this is a, a message that's consistent throughout the Bible, from the beginning of the, the pages of the Bible all the way through to the end. And I've just picked out three separate um, demonstrations of this covenant that uh, God wishes to to enter into. Now, covenant we might not uh, normally use that word. Uh, in fact, potentially the only time you might uh, refer to it, and perhaps as a marriage covenant or, or something like that. And realistically, it's it's a contract which is uh, even more binding. In fact, the example of Abraham that we have, um, what they originally did with the covenant is that they, uh, the two people who came together in this agreement, this covenant, would actually uh, um, kill an animal, split it in half, and they'd both walk through the two halves together to demonstrate that if they broke that covenant, then they should become like that animal. 
Uh, so this, there was a covenant that was made uh, from God to Abraham. And we're reading uh, from the book of Genesis chapter 15 on the screen. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, that is to Abraham, saying, He that will come out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And so he brought him forth abroad. So God brought Abraham abroad and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars. If you're able to number them, that's the number of your descendants, of your seed. Now, uh, at this point, Abraham had no child at all. And he was an old man. But the fantastic thing is that Abraham, in the very next part, believed in the Lord. So God counted that to him as righteousness. And in that same day, the Lord then made a covenant and said, Unto your seed I have given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river to the river Euphrates. And remember the context of this. Abraham had no child at this point. And as part of the terms of the covenant, what God would do as on his side of the covenant was he would give him a family and he would give him the land. And ultimately he would give him life too. A family that was so great that it would be like the stars of the heavens. In Abraham's side, well, he was to believe and to obey. So these are the two sides of the covenant. Now, this covenant was then reconfirmed with the family that did spring from Abraham that became the nation of Israel. And there was a covenant that was made then between God and the nation. And this is reading from Exodus chapter 24, where Moses, now acting uh, on behalf of God here, took the book of the covenant, book of the words of the covenant, which included the Ten Commandments uh, and more, and he read them in the audience of the people, and they said, everything that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. And we see exactly the same things coming through, don't we? We see that God has, has put forward the terms of the covenant in the, in the book of the covenant, and that included the commandments that the, pe the people must obey, but it also included the blessings that would come if they were to obey, and the cursings that would come if they didn't. That was what God would do on his part. He would give them blessings, he would give them the land, he would give them abundance, he would give them fruitfulness, he would give them life. And the side that Israel, the nation, had to pay, play, where they, they were to obey, they were to have faith and to obey. And these same ideas are then picked up again in the New Testament. In fact, as I say that, the New Testament, we have the whole story of the Bible in the, in the names of the two parts of the bible the old testament and the new testament we've just been speaking of the old testament testament really uh being equivalent to that of, of covenant where god is continuing with the same story that he is wishing to form a relationship with mankind and he's wishing to enter into a covenant with them and in order to confirm that even further than with the nation of israel he sent his son and he sent his son in order to confirm that covenant to offer it to all. <coughs> me. And so Jesus instituted uh, what we know as the Last Supper. Where it says here that Jesus took bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup also and he gave thanks and he gave to them saying, drink ye all of it. 
For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so Christ says, look, I want to create a new covenant. And it's on the basis of what I have done. It's on the basis of my blood, the blood of his sacrifice. And he says, what you need to do is you need to drink of it as well. And really, that's a reference to the fact that we need to uh, pick up the cup in the same way that Christ picked up the cup and follow after him in the same ways. We need to act in obedience of faith, following Jesus, in order to enter into this covenant. And as a result, God will provide remission of sins. That is salvation. That's life. Realistically, it's the same things that he was offering to Abraham, to the nation of Israel, and to us also. It's the same story all the way through. So what? So what if the Bible has divine origins? Well, a lot, really. Because really, what we're saying is if the Bible has divine origins, then it has great importance for us. Because the Bible has the power to affect change on those who read it consistently and with an open heart. You know, this change can be attested to by thousands of people throughout time who have read the Bible and who have followed it. The change ultimately results in the reader believing the word of the divine author, coming into that relationship, that covenant relationship with him, and ultimately being granted eternal life by the almighty creator. Just sit back and listen to the, to the way that the word of God or, or the gospel, uh, which is preached, is described within the New Testament writings and the way in which it can affect change. The word of God is, is styled the power of God for the preaching of the words uh, of the cross as the cross of Christ is to those who perish foolishness, but to us which are saved. It's the power of God. Or again, in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. The word of God is able to generate faith because faith comes by hearing, but hearing by the word of God. The word of God is able to reconcile us to God. You that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and don't be moved from the gospel which you have heard. The gospel being the word of God. The word of God is able to uh, make us as children of God, begotten of God, in, in the words of uh, James 1, of God's own will begat he us with the words of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures or being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible how by the word of god which lives and abides forever the word of god is able to bring salvation now brethren i commend you to god and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them who are sanctified Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham and whoever among you that fears God, to you is the word of salvation sent. 
And finally, the word of God is able to bring life and immortality. Second Timothy, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So really, the word of God, the words that we have in the Bible, written by God, is able to affect great change, ultimately bringing us to the point where we may have life and life eternal. So what now? Well, now we invite you to read, to reread, and to consider again the Bible, God's word. And we invite you to do so together with us. You know, the mark of any good book is that you are able to read it more than once. And I'd suggest that the Bible that actually has been written, that you can read it and read it and read it day after day after day for the entirety of your life without ever tiring of the story, without ever tiring of the message. It's been designed that way because it was God who designed it. It was God who wrote it. It was God who knows you and the way that you work, who wrote this message for us to be able to read so that we can enter into a covenant relationship with the almighty God, a relationship that can bring stability and peace now in this world of uncertainty and fear, and a relationship that can ultimately bring life eternal. And this is the great promise of this book of books, the Bible, which has a divine origin. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen